You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Now, on Today in the Word radio. As I've been moving around the campus today talking to one person and another, I discovered that there's been quite a little competition going on in the last 24 hours. As people realized we were getting to the games, and the competition has revolved around what verse is he going to speak on out of, <laughs> out of all of these? Uh, we're going to look at verses 7 through 12. That, I guess, is the longest passage in any of these morning studies. Uh, but I think we may be able to get through that, at least in some measure, in the time at our disposal. And the title that I'm giving to today's study is Live Looking Up. Live Looking Up. Of all the criticisms that there are of the Bible today, and there are many, there is none more ludicrous than that which says that is no longer relevant for today. And when people say, now, the Bible is not relevant today, not only would I challenge that ridiculous statement, but I would go further than that. I would challenge them to open the Bible at a single page that is relevant and powerful to say to the 20th century in which we live. And so surely we have a relevant passage here in verses 7 through 12. It is written specifically to Christians living under... It's interesting that the subject, you might say, generally is the second coming of Christ. Interestingly, in the New International Version, the section is headed, Patience in Suffering. And, of course, the one flows into... a whole change of tone here. You may have noticed that as we read through the chapter. Verses 1 through 6 are addressed to uh, godless oppressors, persecutors of those Christian faith. And now James turns to encourage Christians themselves to look up for their ultimate day of deliverance. Live looking up is the tone of what he's saying. Change of tone, of course, by his constant use of the phrase brethren. In verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 10, and in verse 12, he reverts to that word, brothers. And that immediately challenges my heart along these lines. One of the most profound things that the Scripture says about our fellowship with one another is this, not only that we are members of Christ, even if we don't understand that, we're quite familiar with the phrase, but that we are also members one of another. We are actually part of each other. It's not just that we've all joined the same club and signed the same declaration of faith. It's that we are actually a part of each other. It's more even than that we belong to each other. We are actually members one of another. And that being so, the bond of feeling of empathy that there ought to be among Christians is that which cannot be expected to be discovered in any other relationship on the face of this earth. But let me ask you as I ask my own heart whether that is in fact so. And is it so in the case of Christians who are under pressure and trial and suffering? I remember that remarkable man, Richard Wurmbrandt, who you may remember, spent 14 years in communist jails in solitary confinement and now has such a burning heart of concern for not only for those who are persecuted by the communists, but for the communists themselves. Once saying this, why, if you are members of the same body, do you pain when these people suffer? After all, when we hurt our finger, we feel the pain, as it were, in the whole of our body. Our finger is not divorced from our body, so that we can say, well, the pain is only there and doesn't else. That pain is referred 
to one degree or another throughout the whole of our body. And Wurmbrandt's question is inescapable and challenging. Do you feel the pain when another part of the body suffers? But from that uh, challenge, just uh, from the opening, from the general, a general look at the passage, let's move into the text. And let me suggest to you that there is here for oppressed Christians. I'm using the word word, not to refer just to, uh, to one single word, but to the message that James is bringing. And the first is this. There's a word of expectation. A word of expectation. Verse 7, he speaks of the coming of the Lord. Verse 8, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Verse 9, the judge standeth before. Now these three phrases form the context of the whole passage. And I want you to notice one thing that each of them says about the second coming of Christ. The first is this, it was clear. It was clear. Therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. This is James's first reference to the second coming in his letter, and it could hardly be more concise and definite. In the NIV, be patient then, brothers, unto the Lord's coming. James does not say just in case he should come. He says until he should come, unto the Lord's coming. Clear, concise, definite. No explanation needed because believed it. It's one of the fascinating things that it is taken for granted, is always spoken of in such definite and clear terms and no explanation given of it. It's been calculated that there are 1,830 to the second coming of Christ in Scripture. I'm not really quite sure about that, but I am sure that there are around 300 references in the New Testament alone. And that is, on average, once for every third Matthew to Revelation. And never in a spirit of possibility or doubt or supposition or hypothesis, but always in terms of clarity and certainty. It is clear, says James, the, Lord, the Lord's coming is near. The judge is standing at the door. Now there are three main Greek words used in the New Testament for the second coming of Christ. The one that James uses here is the word parousia. And the significance of the word parousia is that it had to do or was used of the coming, the arrival of the Roman emperor. And of course it therefore meant beyond all shadow of a doubt his visible presence. When the emperor came to a place, people just didn't have a vague idea uh, of the emperor's presence. They didn't get all sorts of spooky ideas about, well, we just have to imagine that the emperor is here. When the emperor came, there was all the pomp and the ceremony and the panoply and all the rest of it, and he himself was there in person. It was a parousia, and a, an appearance, a presence rather. And it speaks of his authority and power when he comes. Now, Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 24 when he speaks of the coming of the Son of Man. Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 when he speaks of the coming. Peter uses it in 2 Peter 1.16 when he speaks of the coming of the Lord. John uses it when he says that we should live so that we may be confident and unashamed at his coming 1 John 2, 28. And the main thrust, let me repeat, is a person's actual visible presence. And it's easy to see why James is using it here. Here are Christians facing great difficulties and pressures. They are conscious to a greater or less degree of the Lord's spiritual presence. They know, indeed, the phrases are used in the Old Testament, that the Lord is with them and alongside of them and before them and behind them and all of those things. The spiritual sense of the Lord's presence. But now James is speaking about something quite different. He's not now speaking about a sense of the Lord's spiritual presence with them. He is speaking about the Lord's visible presence 
He will come. The old Puritan preacher John Trapp said, This is pinned as a badge to the sleeve of every true believer that he looks for and longs for Christ's coming judgment. The Lord's coming is near, or King James, the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now remember again the context. There must have been some of these Christians, persecuted, downtrodden, hauled into court, maligned by all of their enemies, who must have thought, wondered whether there was ever going to be an end to their suffering. Were their problems never going to end? Here they were, scattered, persecuted, violent their Christian faith. Was it never going to come to an end? And James says, yes, it's going to come to an end. As a matter of fact, the Lord's coming is near. It's getting closer all the time. The practical implication is therefore this, that the time of their suffering was getting, it was getting shorter, not getting longer. Oh, it had lasted longer, but it was getting shorter. The time of their persecution, let me say, shorter because the coming of the Lord was drawing near and even the worst of their agony was to be seen in the light of the glory that would come with their Lord what Paul has to say in precisely this area in 2nd Corinthians 4 and verse 17 well backing up to verse 16 for which cause we faint not but though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is uh, but for a moment. Oh, and by the way, perhaps I ought to tell you what Paul's light affliction was. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shame. The day I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren and painfulness in watchings often in hunger and thirst and fastings often in cold and nakedness and above all of that the care of all the churches well as Paul says this light affliction is but for a moment and it works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory comforting truth that the coming of the Lord is drawing near we don't know how near it is and not even those who speak most eloquently and write most fulsomely to assure us that they do know either we don't know how near it is we do know that we're in the last days because they uh, existed from the day of Pentecost onward Peter told the crowd that when Joel spoke about the last days well this is that we are now in the So I never have any problem when someone says, don't you think we're in the last days? The answer is, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. So I've got no problem with that, nor do I have any problem with the fact that the Lord's coming is getting nearer and nearer and nearer. thousand years nearer than when James wrote these words. So if this was comforting to them, how much more to us? And if we feel the burdens and pressures of life, and indeed we ought as Christians in this godless, careless world, then let us comfort ourselves. Not just take it as a pillow and do nothing. This is no, this is no encouragement to stargazing. We're not to be standing up looking into heaven and wondering what's going to happen. Doing in the Lord's service, but we also will take scriptural warrant to be comforted by the fact that the Lord's coming is drawing near. It's clear. It's comforting. Thirdly, it's challenging because James goes on to say, is standing at the door. Verse 9. Notice the change from the Lord to the judge. 
Now, why does he do that? I mean, particularly when he's talking to Christians. You might imagine that in the first six when he's berating those who are persecuting the Christians, he might there speak about the judge and warn them that they're heading straight for trouble if they do that. But now when he's speaking tenderly and lovingly to those who are his brethren in Christ, and he says, oh, my Lord's coming is near, and the judge is standing at the door. Why the change? Why the use of the word judge? Well, the answer lies in the context. You see, it's important to notice that he prefaces the statement with a command. Don't grumble or grudge not against one another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. We'll look at those words later, but the point here is that alongside the clarity and the comfort to be drawn to the coming of Christ is this word and element of challenge. Now, I'm sure you have often heard Preachers evangelistically challenging a congregation with a phrase something like this. At the end of this life, will you face Christ as Savior or as judge? And I know, of course, what is meant by that. The people are being challenged to face up to the issue of whether they have received Christ as personal Savior, whether they've trusted him. And whether on that day they will be among the sheep placed on the right hand or the goats condemned on the left hand and sent into everlasting darkness. And that's really the point that's being made. Will you face as savior or as judge? But unless that explanation is given, in fact, the question, will you face Jesus as savior or judge, is an unbiblical concept. Because the fact of the matter is that him as judge. This is to Christians, James is writing, the judge is standing at the door. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. <coughs> be judged for our salvation, but to be judged in terms of reward. Our salvation won't come into question, but our reward certainly will, and our lives will come under the solemn review of the word of God. And in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3.13, be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. Be clear about this. The Christian will be judged according to his works as a Christian, and his reward, or lack of it, will be on the basis in direct relationship to the things that we've thought and said and done our prayer lives, our relationships at work, our stewardship of time and money and talent, our behavior within the church, at home, at work, our business, business ethics, our social morals, all of those will come under review and be judged and be in their true value and worth. Now, could there be anything more solemn and challenging than that? No wonder that remarkable man, George Bernard Shaw, once said on his 90th birthday, our conduct is influenced by our experience as by our expectations. Now, if that is true, then the second coming of Christ as the judge ought to touch and tincture every area of our lives. Martin Luther once said, I preach as though Jesus Christ died yesterday, rose from the dead today, and was coming back tomorrow. And we should live, whether we're preachers or not, our lives should be lived in the light of Christ's second coming. And not to think of his second coming as being uh, an endless jamboree, but to recognize that there will be that moment of judgment. This will come under review. And in a way that I cannot understand, Everyone in heaven eventually will be eternally joyful around the throne of God's glory and grace. The fact of the matter is that there will be a measure of lack of it related to our responsibilities and stewardship as Christians. So there's a word of expectation. The Lord is coming. And then secondly, there's a word of exhortation. Verse 7. Be patient, therefore, 
brethren. Verse 8, be also patient. And verse 9, grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. And again on in verse 12, another. Above all these things, my brethren, swear not neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay into condemnation. Now we're going to take all of those words together because here is a word of exhortation given to us in four imperatives, four commands, four things, two of them negative and two of them positive. Let's take the negative ones. Here's number one, a warning against intolerance. Do not grumble, I'm using the NIV now, do not grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. Stenazzo, which has at its root uh, the sense of groaning, something internal and unexpressed. It's a kind of grinding or boiling going on and it's not difficult to see why James uses that word here again. Remember always the context. Here were Christians under pressure, finding the going tough, wondering when all of the, the problems of being a godly Christian in a God ever going to end. And here they are beginning to fray at the edges. Oh, I can identify with all of this. I know exactly what James is getting at. And as they begin to fray at the edges, the pieces begin to fly straight into the faces of other Christians. That's what happens. When a Christian begins to crack up under the strain, then the first victims are usually other Christians. Divine is a great tactic that the devil uses. No surprise he uses it. He loves to wreck a relationship that's bringing glory to God. He loves to destroy the harmony within a church that's going somewhere for God. Up a work that's making progress and under which people are coming to Christ. And this is one of his main tactics. And therefore we should expect it. I have the blissful situation for the last two years of uh, withdrawing from a larger organization. And now I'm just with two other men, uh, like-minded uh, whose hearts the Lord has drawn together over the last 20 years that we've known each other. And we have a marvelous, intimate, loving relationship that is perhaps unique among evangelists in Britain working in that way. And we never take it for granted. And we are constantly praying that God will set a barrier or edge around us and that he will cover us with the blood of Christ, and that he will bind every effort of Satan to bring even the slightest division between us, that we might be united in Christ. I remember some years ago going on what we rather grandiosely called a mission to Europe. Now, how many people do you imagine would be needed for that? Well, there were three of us. Uh, in a car, and we drove off from England. We were going to visit a number of... Uh, both sides of the Iron Curtain, particularly we were concerned with those in uh, Eastern Europe, and uh, we met up in a town on, towards the south coast of England and then uh, stayed overnight in a Christian conference center and then went off the next day in a craft that takes you to France in 30 minutes uh, from the southeast coast of England and then made our way through the whole of uh, France and West Germany and on into, into Eastern Europe and other places. And we had hard on that journey. And we were to spend weeks together uh, locked up in that car. We'd hardly begun the journey when the enemy began to be at work. And little niggling things that really we should have been able to deal with so easily began to loom so large. And all of our molehills gradually became mountains. Great blessings were minimized. Little problems were magnified, and we found that we'd started the wrong kind of spirit. We needed to back right up and get down before the Lord. And then, having done that, we found that we needed to cast ourselves upon him day after day and hour after hour for his protection and enablement. 
And it was a remarkable experience. And so were those weeks together and visiting all of those mission stations. And still today we see the fruit in Europe of what happened on that very inauspicious, really little pinprick, really, was all we were uh, in Europe. But we praise God for what he was enabled to do. And for the lessons that we learned and that are directly related to what James is saying here when he speaks of a war intolerance, of not flying off the handle with other Christians, not losing our temper, keeping our cool is the phrase that you would use today. Well, not only is there a warning against intolerance, against irreverence. This rather long phrase in verse 12 about not swearing. Now, what is James? what does James mean by this? Well, it's a trifle difficult uh, to get to the root of it. If we concentrate on one central thing rather than expounding every word that's there. The background is this, that oath-taking formed a very important part of the Jewish religion. It was built into the infrastructure religious system. So much so that we're told in Hebrews that when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, Hebrews 6. Later on, we're told God it with an oath. Not only that, but we find the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 1 saying, I call God as my witness that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So here is God making the covenant, swearing by himself, taking an oath in his own name. Here is Paul saying, I call God to witness. I swear before God that it was to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. So if God takes an oath, swears by his own name, if the apostle Paul does it, why does James forbid it? Well, we need to dig just a little deeper into the background. And the simple explanation is that oath-taking had fallen into two ways. First of all, people used so many oaths. They took an oath for just about everything that really it had lost all of its significance. It's rather like the word meaningful. That I always so often that it doesn't have any meaning. So even meaningful has become meaningless. And people used oaths just all day and every day so that there was nothing solemn and special about them. Fallen into disrepute was this, that the Jews began to say that an oath was binding if the name of God was brought into it, but it was not binding if the name of God was not actually mentioned in the oath. For instance, swear by the earth or by Jerusalem or by the heavens, or you could swear by the hair on your head. And as long as you didn't mention the name of God in that oath, held to it as being binding. Now, I ask you, how ridiculous. We had a poll taken in Britain not so long ago in which 70% of those interviewed said they did not feel that marriage vows should be considered binding. Oh, take an oath. Sure, swear before the people that you mean this, but you don't necessarily need to be held to that. Now, that's what the Jews were saying. I swear by heaven that I will do this. <laughs> but I haven't mentioned I'm not actually bound to do it. Or I swear by Jerusalem, that is what he said. Of course, I've not brought the name of God into the oath, so that may not be what he said. I may not be telling the truth. I've taken an oath. I've sworn. I haven't mentioned God's name, so I may not be telling the truth. Well, something that was serious, sacred even, had become farcical. And Christians needed some clear guidelines on the issue. It's important to notice that James is not forbidding the taking of oaths in a court of law. Of course, it oughtn't to be needed. You ought to be able to ask a man a question and get a straight answer. This is precisely what James is saying. Let your yes be yes. No, let it be as clear and as definite as that. But we live in an imperfect world. And the whole structure of oath-taking in the legal sense 
with all of its sanctions against perjury, is necessary in some measure to guard accuracy of what is said. It's a concession to the imperfect world in which we live. Oaths have become necessary because of man's dishonesty. But the real lesson that here is this, that in our ordinary, everyday, out-of-court dealings with people, in our business dealings and all the rest of it, we should be so straightforward and uncomplicated and honest and above board that nothing or emphasis of any kind should be needed. I was talking to a publisher the other day, uh, a newspaper publisher, about an article that I uh, was uh, having published in there, and we were just going together and he said, you know, I decided when I took over this newspaper that wherever possible I would get rid of adjectives. I thought that was a very strange thing to say until he showed me how by getting rid of adjectives the thing just seemed to stand out in greater And uh, he was uh, really saying something about the overuse of adjectives where you always had to pile in the adjectives to emphasize what you were saying. Whereas by just using the noun or the verb or whatever, the thing was just as clear. And I think James is moving in somewhat of the same area here, that a man ought not to have to say, I absolutely swear and declare that I am telling you the absolute and total and complete and utter truth. James says, no, just say, what happened? And you've avoided all of those adjectives to do with truth. If it's the truth, it's the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. As Curtis Vaughan says, one's mere word should be as a signed agreement attested by legal witnesses. Of course, there's another element woven into what James is saying here, and that is that there's a stern prohibition against taking God's name in vain, either by lightly or by using it in an oath or otherwise. Any use of God's name other than in reverence and in awe is condemned by God himself. And to understand that is to understand why James says, above all, notice that in verse 12, above all things, do not swear. What a word that is for today's casual world we live. I was watching a television program last time I was in America, religious television program for few moments and there was a gentleman there and this is one of the best known most widely supported television programs in your country there's someone had telephoned in with a problem about prayer and this man who was walking up and down the studio in a very casual and relaxed way giving instant answers to everybody's problems said now you don't have to have problems about prayer you just go to the Lord and I got a problem about prayer well, I don't suppose it would have been a Christian thing for me to put my foot through the television set, especially as it didn't belong to me, so I didn't. But mentally I did. And no man, no man, not even a man who's in charge of a television program bringing in millions of dollars a year has the right to say to God, hey man, listen, I've got a problem. I'm sorry, but that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. And it's blasphemy in the name of religion and that makes it worse we're not to take God's name lightly God may amazingly staggeringly be our friend but he's not our buddy well there's a warning against irreverence now to the two positive exhortations the first is this there's a call for restraint and all of the uses of patient. Be patient, therefore. Be ye also patient. Then the example in verse 10 and so forth. Be patient. The Greek word is makrothumeo, which literally means long-tempered. Macro, we're quite familiar with. Macro, macro is the large. Makrothumeo, long-tempered. It carries the thought of restraining anger and resentment regardless of the provocation. Patience in the Bible is not a word of 
waiting and doing nothing and waiting for something to happen. It's rather when the world is caving in, when you're being pressurized, when you're being provoked, then you just cool it. Restrain your anger and resentment regardless of the provocation. Is your life always marked by an inner restraint that bears with injury and provocation? Kindness? I think there are few things that test us more than discovering what the length of our fuse is when we've been offended. Paul in Colossians 3 says, clothe yourself with patience. Just make sure that it covers you completely. This long-temperedness is the best way that I can get of explaining it. That's really what it means. We can everything in life except our temper, I guess. Secondly, there's not only a call for restraint, there's a call for resolution. Stand firm says James. Establish your hearts in verse 8. And the Greek word here has uh, one particular use in the New Testament, which is a vivid illustration of exactly what is meant. It's where we're told in Luke 9 that Jesus steadfastly set to go to Jerusalem. Or as the NIV has it, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now follow this carefully. Jesus knew exactly what he was going to face there. He knew about the betrayal, lies, about the intrigues, about the trials, about the blood, the sweat, the agony, the torture, the flaying, the flogging, the crown of thorns, and the crucifixion. Knew exactly what he was going into. And he knew something else. He knew that beyond that, beyond that lay the resurrection. He knew that beyond the roar of the crowd, there was the song of the angels. He knew that beyond the rejection by men, there was the reception of the Father. He knew that beyond the crown of thorns, there was a crown of glory. He knew that beyond the cross, there was the throne of God. And so resolutely set out refusing to yield to the pressures around him. Because he knew that even those things, even those things were temporary. And that beyond the cross, there was the crown. Isn't that? in which the writer to the Hebrews says we are to live the Christian life. And you know it very well. Let me read it to you in the New International Version. Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance. There's our word. The race marked out for us. Let us run with patience the race that is set before us. King James Version. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, or originator and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down on the right hand of God. That's exactly the point. It was that was set before him that he endured the cross and despised the shame. He knew that these weren't the end. He knew they could not be avoided, but nor could they prevent him reaching the glory. And the Bible doesn't speak of patience as waiting for something to happen, but rather resolution when things are happening. Biblical patience is not rooted in fatalism that says everything is out of control, in faith that says everything is under control, under God's control. Well, a word of expectation and a word of exhortation. And now a word of example. And you have it in verse 7. The husbandman or the farmer. And then in verses 10 and 11, we have the prophets 
and in particular we have Job. So let's take those three examples. Three examples of people who illustrate the virtues of patient endurance. The farmer, said James. There's an example. And the farmer, verse 7, he waits for the precious fruit of the earth, long patience for it until he receives the, well, the early and latter rain. That means the autumn and the spring rain. Now the farmer knows that both of those are going to occur. They're going to happen. What he does is to sow faithfully, cultivate carefully, wait patiently, and God will fulfill his promise. God will do his bit. God will send the autumn and the spring rains. The farmer doesn't say, well, God is going to do it all. Isn't that wonderful? God does everything. Let go and let God. God will take the seed out of the barn, take it along to the field, empty the sack, scatter it around. No, God won't do anything of the sort. God will do his bit. God will send the early and the latter rain. And the farmer, what does he do? He does everything he can and then trusts that God will do what only God can do. Now, there's the spirit in which to live the Christian life, we do everything we can, and then we trust that God will do that. And the farmer is patient. He doesn't sow the seed in the morning, go out with the combined harvester in the afternoon. No, he waits patiently. No wonder my friend Alec Motier says in the patience is a fruitful virtue. That's lovely. Secondly, James speaks of the prophets, verse 10. Take the prophets who've spoken in the name of the Lord for an suffering, affliction, and of patience. Why? The persecution of prophets was a fact of history. You'll recall that when Stephen himself was being martyred in Acts 7, he says, was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? James says, now, as you know, prophets are persecuted. That's an occupational hazard of being a prophet. You get persecuted. Which of the prophets, said Stephen? You name one, if you can, who wasn't persecuted. If you were a prophet, you were persecuted. It was a byword. In Hebrews 11, there's a spine-chilling list of ways in which God's special messengers had been persecuted. Tortured, flogged, chained, imprisoned, stoned, banished from society. Prophets were persecuted. But what do we think of them now? Now where do we place prophets in our assessment? Do we pity them? No, we don't. Pity them at all. Verse 11, we count them happy, which endure. We don't so much pity them as envy them. They are our heroes. They're the people we admire. And what we rejoice in is that they pass victoriously that persecution and now have received the crown of life. So James says, we rejoice, we are happy for them because they endured, but we're called to do more than that. James says, he uses the word. And examples are to be followed, not just admired. They're to be copied, not just complimented. It's not enough for us to read the story of men who've endured great hardness for the sake of Christ and then say, well, that's wonderful, he's my hero. No, we're to follow their example. Examples are to be copied, not complimented. And if they suffered so much and yet endured so courageously, shouldn't we bear our smaller burdens with resolution and with faith? No wonder the Lord Jesus put it like this in in the Sermon on the Mount, taking up exactly the same point in Matthew 5. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, they say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's James uses. Verse 11, Job. Now, even today, we, we speak of the patience of Job. You have heard. You see, it was proverbial. You've heard. I'm not telling you something you don't know. James is saying, everybody knows about the patience of Job. You've heard of the patience of Job. 
Well, the King James does use the word patience there. Actually, there's a switch of word in the Greek, and it's not thermia at all. It's another word that really means perseverance. And the difference, if, there, if it can be put simply, is this. That what Job showed was not so much patience with as patience with circumstances. I would make that the difference between the two Greek words that are used here. Patience with circumstances in the settled assurance that they are all overruled God to his glory. Now, Job was not perfect. He made mistakes. And he lost his cool with some of those with whom he discussed his problems. But throughout it all, he retained his steadfast faith. Remember that indescribable day when he lost all of those thousands of animals, all of his livestock, all of his livelihood, and all of his children, and then fell upon the ground and worshipped. Came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return again thither? The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And as scripture adds, in all of this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. He did not charge God with dealing unjustly with when the pressures were even greater in some ways, his trust in God was such that he could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Do we begin to match that kind of faith and trust and perseverance under trial? And then too, notice James's own comment on Job's story. He says that his readers have seen what the Lord finally brought about. You have seen the end, not very uh, happily translated, what the Lord finally brought about, and adds, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy, very pitiful and of tender mercy. And I've underlined the, underlined the word in my Bible. You saw what the Lord finally brought about, or if you've got King James, you better underline the word end and uh, put some marginal note that, to say that it means what the Lord finally brought about. I suppose in that we're using today, I suppose what Job is saying is, but notice what the bottom line was. Job's story only begins to make sense when we read the bottom line. See that through it all, God was at work and that his ultimate purposes were loving and kind. And without that golden thread running through the whole of the story of Job, the whole thing collapses into a meaningless heap of pain and suffering and sorrow and heartache. But when we see what the Lord brought about, then we can say surely that the end justified the means. When we see that even the worst of Job's brought about blessing. John Calvin says this, and it's, it's unforgettable. Afflictions ought ever to be estimated by their end. Afflictions ought ever to be by their end. We should never pass a final judgment on any affliction until we know what the bottom line is until we know what it's done. Those of you who heard my own testimony will know that although I feel that I've had joy and happiness uh, and fruitfulness in life a million times beyond anything that I ever expected or deserved, the most fruitful period of my life was the darkest. It's the bottom line. It's the end product that counts. And in Job's case, the end was glorious. Materially, we're told in Job 42, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had. Even a family was restored to him. Of course, on a higher level, his character was completely vindicated and his spiritual experience and understanding were enriched beyond measure. Of course, it may seem strange to allow his servant to experience such darkness, but we can reverently say the end justified the means. And in James's own words, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That's the right note on which to end our study, because we too live in a world of affliction and 
pressure and persecution of one kind or another that are problems beyond our understanding, that are times when we're tempted, some Christians are, to throw in the towel, not to bother any longer, despair, turn aside from the pathway of obedience. Well, when we're tempted to do any of those things, let's encourage ourselves by remembering that the Lord is that we're going to be with him in glory and forever, and that when we reach there, we'll testify that through it all, the Lord was full of compassion and mercy. And if we're going to say it then, why don't we now? Why don't we begin to show the faith of the psalmist who was able to say, and have you ever realized it was not so much a testimony as a prophecy? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, if we lived with that conviction, we'd be unstoppable. We don't know what our future holds. James himself reminds us of that. Had ideas about it. We don't know what a day may bring forth. Who knows what tomorrow, next week, next month, next year may bring into our lives of sunshine and shadow, of mountaintop and valley, and pain, of prosperity, of poverty, of heartache, of joy. We simply don't know. But we do know this. It's not actually true that we don't know everything that's going to happen tomorrow, if we have a tomorrow, of course. Goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. No wonder I can feel just calling this study Live Looking Up. Henry Downton has a hymn with these words in, Then the end, thy church completed, all thy chosen gathered in, with their king in glory seated, and banished sin, gone forever, parting sorrow, uh, parting, weeping, hunger, sorrow, death, and pain. Lo, her watch, thy church is keeping. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and John Blanchard's message titled Live Looking Up that he presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Next week, when we bring you a series of messages that Irvin Robertson presented at Moody Week at Winona Lake, Indiana, 1978. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.